0: Well, my name is Paul. I haven't met you. Welcome to all here in the building and those online. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to focus tonight on chapter 5, verses 1 to 16, and we'll dip into verses 17 to 30 uh, towards the end. Let me pray. Uh, Father, thank you that your word is so precious to us, and thank you for those men and women who translated this word into our own tongue. Uh, Father, we're conscious of many in our world today who who still don't have the Bible in their own language. And we pray that you would raise up those people to translate it. As we sit under your word tonight, would you feed us and nourish us? Would you challenge us? Would you show us again the glory of Christ? And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. I love this quote from Mother Teresa. She says this, The greatest disease today is not leprosy or tuberculosis, but rather the feelings of being unwanted, unloved, uncared for, and deserted by everybody. We can cure physical diseases with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There are many in this world who are dying for a piece of bread, but there are many more dying for just a little love. There's a poverty, a poverty of spirituality, a a hunger for God, a, a deep need for God to experience the love of God in our world today. And I think she's right. Our world is full of broken people, hurting, helpless, hopeless people, longing to be loved, longing to be needed, longing to be wanted. There's a true story of a radio station that we're trying to show some love to the broken people in their community. And so they invited their listeners to send in anonymously names of broken people they could shower with love. Now, this will date this illustration, it's back in the 90s, but one astute church pastor sent into that radio station the entire telephone directory for that place. He's saying, Everybody's broken and everybody needs love. And he's right. Everybody is broken in one way or another, needing to experience love. Some of us here tonight will be broken physically, uh, suffering pain, suffering illness. Uh, Some might be uh, broken emotionally, with sadness and with sorrows and with despair and depression. Some of us here will be broken relationally, fractured friendships, broken marriages, hurting But all of us here, all of us here, and online, around the world, we're all broken spiritually. We all have this this hunger in our our soul for God. We all have this problem in our heart called sin. And that's why Jesus came into the world, isn't it? Jesus stepped into this world to to heal the hurting and to, to bind up the broken and to save lost souls and to transform our our sin-filled hearts. That's why he came. He longs to shower you with his love, and his grace, and his mercy. I've got one main point today. Here it is. Uh, Jesus is our merciful, life-giving judge. Uh, Jesus is our merciful, life-giving judge. So in this John chapter 5, it's a theologically dense but relationally rich chapter. And Jesus meets this broken man, a man who'd been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus lavishes him with mercy. He offers him life and he warns him about judgment. So I want to walk through these verses. Walk through the stories. Open up your Bibles and spot these themes of mercy and life and judgment. Mercy and life and judgment. Uh, Verse 1. Some time later, now we don't know how long long later, maybe up to a year later, uh, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. And again, we don't know which festival. It could be Pentecost, it could be Passover, it's probably Tabernacles. Verse 2, now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Uh, This sheep gate is mentioned in the Bible in Nehemiah chapter 3. So it's a place on the walls of Jerusalem where the sheep are kept. Why do you need sheep? You need a sheep because when you go to Jerusalem, you need to, to offer a sacrifice. And so you'll get your sheep from the sheep gate. And so before you offered your sheep for sacrifice, you would wash that sheep in this pool, this pool called Bethesda. Now, this pool, I think this massive pool, three times the size of an Olympic swimming pool. And it's got a beautiful name. It's called Bethesda, which means house of mercy. Isn't that a great name? Because when you take your sheep and offer your sheep, you're experiencing the mercy of God. But here's the reality this place was anything but a house of mercy, it was a hangout of misery. Verse 3, a great number of disabled people used to lie there, the blind, the lame, and the paralysed. A great number, verse 3. So in normal times, about 30 people. At festival times, 300 people. It would have been horrific sight, a horrible smell. All, all these people who were shunned by the doctors, all these people that society shunned, all these people who were shunned by their family, all these people who were broken and lost and uncared for and unloved, all these people who needed a miracle. There's a glimmer of hope in our text, though. Look at the footnote. It's, it's not part of the original text. It's like a, a scribble in the margin, a glimmer of hope. Look at the footnote. They waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters and the first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever whatever disease they had. So it seems like there was this subterranean spring and the the waters would bubble up and there was this legend that when when the waters bubbled, first one in got cured. And that sounds wonderful, but actually it's quite cruel, isn't it? It's saying survival of the fittest, first in, best dressed. You've got loads of people and they can't help themselves and now it's strongest, fastest one wins. That is not the love of God, is it? That's a cruel way to show mercy. But that's not God. That is legend. I know if you've read John's gospel, you should know by now that that water is never the solution. Now John chapter 2, water is a symbol of the old age. When Jesus comes, he ushers in the age of wine, not Water. John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, she was never satisfied by water. She needed a living water. She needed the Holy Spirit in her. And we're back to meet a man who needed the Holy Spirit. He needs to meet Jesus. And verse 5, we don't know who he is. One day, he sees a man who has been an invalid for 38 years. Let's ponder that. Four decades. We don't know how he became an invalid, maybe at birth, but maybe not. Maybe later in life, maybe this man had been married with kids and a wife and a beautiful home and a great job, but something happened that left him paralysed and an invalid. And the point is that there's this, that he'd been shunned by everybody. He'd hit rock bottom. He was unloved and unwanted and helpless and hopeless. That is the picture. But the word used for disabled in verse 3, and invalid in verse 5, is actually the word impotent. And that's not not how we use the word today. It means powerless. It means weak. It means helpless. So you've got this impotent man about to meet the omnipotent Jesus. You've got this powerless man about to meet the all-powerful Jesus. You've got this miserable man about to meet the all-merciful Lord Jesus Christ. And you spot the mercy of Jesus in verse 6, don't you? When Jesus saw him lying there. Love that. That's an act of mercy. Amongst all the crowds of 3,000 people, Jesus spots this one man and he shows his compassion and his mercy. It reminds me when Jesus looks over Jerusalem. Remember that? He looked over Jerusalem and he saw them as harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. And the Bible says that Jesus is full of mercy, he's full of compassion, his heart is moved. And Jesus chose this man. Society shunned him, but Jesus chose him. Not because he's more worthy, not because he's fitter or stronger, he's just another helpless person who needs God's mercy. See, mercy is God's pitying kindness, towards other people and it's like at this pool of Bethesda this house of mercy that Jesus personifies mercy he he sees people in need he cares for them he has an eye for them and I do think that's a challenge for all of us how do you respond when you see someone in need How, how do you respond when you see somebody who has been shunned by society do you turn a blind eye A patronizing smile. Somebody else can care for them. Mercy towards other people always begins with how you view them. And if you view them through the eyes of Jesus, as a man or a woman or a boy or a girl made in the image of God, your heart should be moved so that they see the mercy of God. And Jesus sees this man, verse 6. And Jesus talks to this man. He says in verse 6, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? That's a very unusual question, isn't it? It would be a bit like going to the North Shore Hospital, to the cancer ward, and saying to people, do you want to get well? Of course I want to get well, they say. But it's not actually a cruel question. It's a very fair question. It's a loaded question. He is asking, do you really want to get well? Do you really want to walk again? Do you really want to change your condition? Because you're so used to begging. Do you want to work for a living now? But more than that, actually, if I tell you the word for well in verse 6, is the same word for salvation. Jesus is really asking, do you want life? Do you want to be saved? Because what Jesus offers this man is not just new legs, but a new life. He offers him a transformed life, a better life now that will last for eternity. Because this invalid, is not just his physical brokenness, but his broken soul, his broken spirituality. He needs forgiveness, he needs hope, he needs restoration. And that's what Jesus offers him. I love the response in verse 7. Sir, he says. So this man has no clue who Jesus is. Sir, he says. I have no one to help me into the pool when the water's stirred. And he's right, isn't he? And he's saying, Jesus, of course I want to get well. It's just that I'm not capable. I'm not able. I'm not strong enough. I'm not fit enough. And he's right. And have you realised that about yourself? That you're not fit enough or strong enough or intelligent enough, or wise enough to earn your relationship with God, to earn your salvation. We all need God's mercy. Jesus speaks in verse 8. He said to the man, get up, pick up your mat and walk. Uh, Just like the other paralytic he healed by who was lowered through that roof. Get up, pick up your mat and walk. Walk. And to that man, that probably sounded impossible. But I hope you know that whenever Jesus gives the command, he also gives you the power to do it. And so verse 9, at once, immediately, miraculously, completely, this man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. So you've got this invalid who's completely healed, not by the water, but by the powerful word of Jesus Christ. And we expect applause. Wow, this is amazing, a miracle. But you don't get that because you've got these religious legalists. Shock, horror, verse 9. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. They say in verse 9, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to to carry your mat. No, actually, the law does not forbid you from carrying a mat. These man-made religious prohibitions forbid you from carrying a mat. It's this typical religious stuff. They don't care about salvation. They're more concerned about about law-keeping. So Jesus has lavished this man with mercy. He has offered him new life. And then Jesus warns this man about judgment. Look at verse 14. You've got to read this very carefully. Later Jesus found the man at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Let me be very clear. Jesus is not saying, He is not saying that sickness is always linked to sin. He's not saying that. That's the mistake that Job's three friends made that you're sick because you sinned. That is pastorally insensitive and theologically incorrect. Now, sure, sometimes we do suffer because of our sin or someone else's sin, but not always. So what does Jesus mean by verse 14? Remember that word well, it also means saved or life or forgiveness. He's saying, see, you have new life again, you are well again, you've been saved, you've been forgiven. Stop sinning, he says. He says, if you carry on sinning, if you carry on living your life as though you haven't met Jesus, if you carry on living your life as though you're going to take all the benefits of Jesus but no responsibility, Then be warned, something worse may happen to you. Let me ask you, what could be worse than four decades of paralysis? And the answer is an eternity of suffering and condemnation. What is worse is an eternity in hell. I mean, this disease took the best years of this man's life, but even worse than that would be if he stopped following Jesus and ended up in hell. And I was thinking this week, I wonder whether anybody had ever loved this invalid enough to talk about sin and judgment. It sounds harsh, but it's actually quite loving. It would have been unmerciful of the Lord Jesus to heal him physically and not warn him about eternity. It's like all the people who I encounter who. They've met Jesus at church or at Christianity Explored or at Alpha Courses, and it's like they, they want Jesus for all the benefits, but they don't like the responsibilities. They they like talking about healings but not holiness. They like mercy but not godliness. And Jesus says, Stop sinning, live differently, allow Jesus to transform you. Now, here's what I love about this story. We're not even sure if this man really believes. Did he believe or not? We don't know. Wait to heaven to find out. But there's a turning point in verse 16, the turning point in John's gospel, actually. Because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. And for the rest of John's gospel, we're going to see how these Jewish people, they ignored the Messiah, they judged him, they did not listen to him, they persecuted him and tried to kill him. But that's the rest of John's gospel. The point of today is this, that, that Jesus loves the broken people. Jesus loves the outcasts. He loves the invalid. He loves the broken. And I think in our world of pain and agony and despair and loneliness and suffering, what people need to hear most it is not doctors or counselors or psychologists, as good as they are. They need to hear the words of Jesus saying, I love you. I care for you. So Jesus offers you mercy. Jesus offers you mercy. Jesus is so merciful and kind and compassionate. Why? Because God is merciful. And the claim of Jesus in verses 17 to 19 is when Jesus acts, God acts, when you see Jesus working, you see God at work because Jesus is fully God. He says in verse 17, "My My Father, not our Father, but my Father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. He's saying there, God doesn't stop working. Aren't you thankful for that? That your God in heaven, he doesn't take a vacation, he doesn't put his feet up and have a rest, he's constantly at work, and he's longing to pour out his mercy and pour out his grace. Because our God is full of mercy, that's how the Bible describes him. Psalm 145, verse 8, the Lord is gracious gracious, full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. Have you grasped that your God just longs to pour his mercy upon you? Remember the story of the, the, the mother who went to Napoleon to plead for her son? She he pleaded for a pardon for her son, but Napoleon said it was her son's second mistake Second offence, and justice demanded his death. So the mother said these words. He says, Napoleon, I don't ask for justice. I just plead for mercy. And the emperor said, but he doesn't deserve mercy. And quick as a flash, the mother said this, Sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask. And Napoleon said, well... I will have mercy. And she said, He saved her son. Have you grasped that you don't deserve anything? You need mercy. You heard that phrase, God helps those who help themselves? It's absolute rubbish. God helps those people who recognize that they can't help themselves. God doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. He's He's so good. He's so caring. We are impotent. We are powerless. We are broken. But praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness. New every morning. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. So he offers mercy. He gives life. Remember John 1, in Jesus was life. Not just biological life, not psychological life, but but life that is truly life, abundant life, everlasting life, and it's found in Jesus Christ. I love verse 21, when Jesus says, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives life, even so the Son gives life to whom he's pleased to give it. Or verse 26, Jesus can give life, because like the Father, he is the source of life. So let me ask you, do you really believe that what people need most in this world is new life in Christ? Do you believe that? You know, we support Andrew Browning as our mission partner. He does incredible work throughout Africa, uh, restoring dignity to broken women, healing their bodies. As a fistula surgeon, he does incredible work. Uh, And these women who are shunned by society and outcast by the world, they come to Andrew Browning and he brings physical healing. Praise God for that. But he does more than that. Because once he heals their bodies... As they are being treated through physiotherapy, he talks about Jesus. And many of these women leave with new life in Christ. So I want to ask you, do you want to get well? Are you here tonight as a broken person who wants to get well, who wants to have life? If you are, just come to Jesus. Verse 24 is really simple. He says, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's the promise. And will not be judged. But has crossed over from death to life. So, so Jesus, he offers you mercy, he gives you life, and then he warns about judgment. And friends, I do know that we don't like talking about judgment. I know that. But we must talk about it. It's important. It's loving. Imagine if it's tonight you Walked home down your street, and as you walk down the streets, you saw your neighbor's house, and all the lights are off, and they're in bed upstairs, fast asleep. And as you walk past his house, you see that downstairs, in the in the lounge room downstairs, the whole of the lounge room is on fire. What would you do at that moment? Would you think to yourself, Oh, I don't want to disturb them? Would you say oh, somebody else can, t- can call the Father go, you would bang on that door saying, wake up, wake up, you're in danger. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I am the judge and everyone's going to face at me as the judge, so please wake up. We're told in verse 22 that the, the Father has handed over judgment to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're told in verse 27 that That Jesus is the judge because he is the Son of Man, that Daniel 7 figure. And we're told in verse 30, when Jesus judges, he will be just. He'll be fair. He'll be right. It's what the whole Bible says, that God has set a day when he'll judge this world with justice. With justice by the man he's appointed. He's given proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead. So he's saying that one day... Every human being, every man, woman, boy, and child will stand before the judgment throne of Jesus Christ. But I want to say, friends, that that day is not a day to be scared of. It is not a day to fear. There's a glorious promise in verse 24. I'll read it again, verse 24. Whoever hears my word and believes or trusts him who sent Jesus, has eternal life. Look at these next few words. And will not be judged. And will not be judged. And what Jesus is saying there is that we will not be judged for our sin on judgment day because if you're a believer in Christ, the judgment for your sin has already been paid for at Calvary 2,000 years ago. So you can approach judgment day not in fear that your sins will be judged because they've already been paid for at Calvary. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's why Judgment Day, my friends, is actually for the believer a glorious day. Because it's the end of brokenness. It's the end of loneliness. It's the end of sickness and the end of suffering and the end of pain. It's the most glorious day. Except, like me, I'm sure you have family and friends who are heading towards that day and they do not believe in Jesus. That's my mum, my brother, my sister, all my family, all my nieces and my nephews. And we must warn them. It is loving to warn them with tears in our eyes. Listen to the words of Billy Graham. Billy Graham was speaking at the funeral of Richard Nixon. He said these words. This death, the death of Richard Nixon, should cause you to think about your own death and what matters will not be what other people say about you or think about you, but what God thinks about you, his judgment and his verdict. You may say, well, I don't believe in a final judgment. Well, Jesus says there will be a final judgment whether you believe it or not, because your beliefs do not create reality. They need to come into line with the reality as it has been revealed to us through the word of God. So it's not cruel, it's the most loving merciful thing you can do to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Jesus ask of us if we've been lavished in his mercy, if we've experienced his life, if we know there's no judgment for us because we're in in Christ? There's one word to leave you with in verse 23. What does he call us to do? He calls us simply to honor Jesus. It's there in verse 23. All may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That's all he asks Will you live your life? Will you live your life obeying Jesus, respecting Jesus, listening to Jesus, loving Jesus, putting Jesus at the center of everything? Because if you've experienced his mercy, if he's made you well, then you've got a glorious future. Just honor him. See, we're all broken people. We're all broken people, aren't we? But the best news is that he loves broken people. That's why he came. Let me pray. Father, thank you for reminding us that your mercy is more. Thank you, Father, that you lavished us with your mercy. It is so undeserving. Father, I do pray for those people on our hearts right now people we know and love who as yet have not been made well by the Lord Jesus. And I give you a moment to name them before God in the quietness of your own heart. We beg of you, Lord Jesus, to lavish them with your mercy and give them that new life and make them well again. And we ask that for Jesus' sake.